Welcome back to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously in Maybar Book One, The New Aleph, Aramis Ferry, Paul Stevens, Nathan Sanchez, and Soma Dan all arrived on the world of Pan by different means. Aramis awoke there years ago, but challenged the status quo with every decision she made. Paul was sent there by a powerful being after being murdered, but only wanted to get back home to his girlfriend on the world of Prometheus. Nathan arrived after a frustrating search for answers to how Maybar had changed during the 800 years he'd been kept asleep in stasis. And Soma came looking for justice for her murdered family and then gained the power to punish all who'd committed similar murders. Aramis helped Paul return to Prometheus. Paul began hunting his own murderer. Nathan confronted Soma on the morality of her long-term plans. And Soma decided to remain steadfast in those plans. And now, the prologue and beginning of book two of The Worlds of Maybar, Echelon. Nine years ago, Aramis Ferry killed herself. It hadn't fixed any of her problems. Since then, she lived as one of the tragic dead, the Pravids, strong and beautiful beings associated with the four elements and given a second chance to live on a mirror world. Aramis was associated with water, which was common for suicides. She had blue skin and could control water nearby her. One of the costs of this second life, however, was that she had to earn back her ability to see all but the colors associated with her element through accepting her new life, whatever that meant. Aramis was unusual in that, after nine years, she still had not lost this colorblindness. Another cost was the loss of memories which ironically included the details concerning how and why she'd killed herself. But not all memories were lost. Aramis had a clear memory of one of her first days of elementary school. She remembered the beginnings of learning English alongside learning how to read and write in French, her native language. At the time, she had some mild trouble grasping, carrying over for two-digit subtraction, but had eventually figured it out. No, her real problems had been with her classmates. Hey, Ari! Six-year-old Aramis had been examining the bark dust and the planters surrounding the small playground behind the schoolhouse, just noticing the variations in size and colors of the bits of mulch, and noticing where weeds were still succeeding in pushing out past them, when she'd heard her name called out by a fellow student just then. She turned around and saw three boys, two of them the bosses of her class. It had only taken maybe a week for the hierarchy to be established. Jasper was charismatic and liked by most people, though not by Aramis, so he had become the one the class looked to for guidance. Who to laugh at, what games to play during breaks, and other things of such importance. His best friend, Ames, was not as bossy, but nearly so, and a bit nicer, so he became a strong executive officer. They stood on either side of Carl, or Curtis, 
or Kagan. Aramis couldn't remember his name, but was sure it was something with a K. Either way, he had been a short, cute boy with blonde hair and a smile that had grabbed Aramis's attention immediately. And right now, all three of them were smiling at Aramis. She did not smile back. She was immediately terrified because earlier that day, Aramis had told three identical sisters in her class, neighbors of hers, that she had a crush on the boy with the K name. She told them this, and they'd promised to keep it a secret with all of the solemnness necessary for such an occasion. All she could say now to the three boys confronting her was, What? Jasper and Ames said something. Something both silky and biting in a way only a language like French could accomplish. But adult Aramis couldn't remember what it was. She remembered their laughter after it had been said. She remembered the cream color of the building behind them. She remembered the dreary overcast sky covering the beautiful city of Seine, made 800 years ago as a reproduction of Paris back on Earth. She remembered the amber and gold and green leaves of the horse chestnut trees bordering the playground, half transformed to their fall colors. She remembered the other kids running around, disinterested in the scene playing out. Whatever the words might have been, the meaning was, you are a fool for thinking you have permission to desire a boy so superior to you. For many years after, Aramis had kept her deepest thoughts and feelings secret from anyone. A poisonous cowardice had festered deep within her. Now, a grown woman in her mid-thirties, sitting in the Rotten Brew dive bar, the memory came to her as she read the message her friend Paul had just sent her via Ashclam. He had given her one half and kept the other of the magical flat black seashell. So, when he wrote in pencil on his half, it would also appear on her half, even though Aramis was on the world of Pan and he was on Prometheus. This sort of exchanging of Ashclam halves between a boy and a girl was usually considered a sweet gesture, except that all he really used his for was to complain about his problems. Particularly about his problems with his current girlfriend, Susie. I still haven't tried talking to her again. I think she just may need some space. She did think I was dead for half a year. Aramis took out a pencil and erased his message. She wrote back, It can take a while to recover from the trauma of losing someone, even if they come back. She knew herself because she was currently dealing with losing Paul. The whole half year his girlfriend thought he was dead, Paul had become her best friend. The whole time, He'd been trying to figure out how to get back to Susie, and Aramis had, naturally, planned and executed an illegal inter-universe smuggling operation to help him. She didn't have any hope of Paul coming back to her, though. She had a feeling he would win Susie over eventually. She added to her message, Once you catch that guy that murdered you, you'll feel better. I imagine doing that will bolster your confidence. She set the clam down loudly on her small table just before the waiter set a glass of rosé down in front of her. Which was partially indicative of why the bar's name was ironic. Rotten Brew was a beautifully dressed hub full of ancient wood and tungsten lighting with large golden loops glowing in their glass globes. 
They had hundreds of different beers and wines and cocktails. And it was where Aramis went to be alone and to calm down. But Paul's messages kind of ruined that. The clam half shivered and vibrated on the table, indicating that Paul was writing his reply. Finally, Aramis picked up the clam half and looked at Paul's reply. I'm very close to figuring out where he's hiding. As far as I can tell, no one has ever had my power before, so I've had to figure out how to use it myself. Not that it's easy to find information on Pravid powers and other magic here in Prometheus anyway. I'd never have noticed how prejudiced against the supernatural people were here until I left and came back. Aramis snorted. She erased Paul's message and wrote, That's the third birth. Often happens when someone leaves their home and comes back. See things they never did before. Aramis smiled as she considered this. The expression third birth was more literal with Paul than the original sentiment. He'd actually been murdered in his hometown, brought back to life in Pan by one of the managers that kept Maybar running, and just before being smuggled back to his home world, he'd nearly died. He'd bonded with Aramis, a complicated and often problematic procedure, to keep himself from being killed by a powerful poison. It had allowed him to share some of Aramis's powerful healing abilities. And as part of that, he'd elected to gain the ability to smell murderers. Aramis had no idea how or why Paul had thought of the idea. Whatever the reason, he could smell two odors from anyone who had committed premeditated murder, as if it was part of their natural body odor that could be picked up by a hound. Sulfur, plus a particular scent from their victim. Interesting, Paul replied. How is the plan going to start a new cult? Aramis grimaced. It's not a cult. It's just an article in an independently published zine. It's just a way to vent. Give myself the illusion of agency in an insane universe. There was a short delay before he replied. They're talking about it here. Aramis felt her gut clench up. She wrote, Talking about what? Echelon. You. The article. People are reading it here. I don't know how. Aramis didn't breathe as she read this message several times. How was an article made by a hole-in-the-wall printer in the Kettle Square of Hemstock, World of Pan, making its way to the city of Lutenia over on the world of Prometheus? Prometheus, where they thought the very existence of Pan was superstitious myth. That could be problematic, Aramis wrote. Do they think we're a cult? Do they even know we're on Pan? I don't know. I saw a printing of an Echelon article taped to a pillar outside a black box theater. I read it and knew right away it was you and the girls. I've overheard people talking about it in coffee shops. That's crazy. Aramis set the clam half down. This was dangerous. It was one thing to voice frustrations about the corruption of the assembly and the consequences of seated Aleph Somadan's overly aggressive reforms to demand that change would happen. It was one more thing to say them to your friends and then hand out those conversations to a few fans that might live nearby. But to have them read on other worlds? On worlds where they didn't believe in other worlds? 
You're not going to stop, are you? Paul asked, just because of that. Aramis stared at the clam half for a long time. In many circumstances in life, she felt like a coward. She avoided confrontation and danger, especially in the area of relationships. However, she was a person of conviction. She erased Paul's question and wrote simply, No. It's finally back. After almost two and a half years, I'm a little disappointed I never got to do a Kickstarter for book one, The New Aleph. But as far as plans falling apart in 2020 go, that's a minor one. Now don't worry. I'll figure out a way to get a print version of that book available to everyone eventually. Thanks to everyone for coming back for book two. I'm going to try and release a new chapter every other week like before. I wrote, performed, and edited this novel myself. You can follow me and ask questions on Instagram or Facebook at A. William Wright. Chapter 1 of Echelon will be releasing on October 19th. And now let's get back to the prologue. We show him professional courtesy, said seated Aleph Jennifer Liu. She was a small woman wearing a bleached white variation of the seated uniform and sitting on what could only be called a throne. We've resurrected the failure, as a win no less, and he repays us by becoming a moderate? Auditor Cal Vondel, in some ways stronger than his patron before him, but in most ways nothing but hired muscle, raised his chin and cleared his throat. He called out, his usually low voice echoing off the stone walls of the dark chamber of Lou's private world. Former seated Negri was likely more humiliated by his errors than we suspected. Than I suspect you mean. The seated looked down at the black pool of oil at her right. There was a red pool of something else on her other side. Vondel was rarely invited into the private pocket worlds of the seated. He wasn't a fan of the indulgences he often found within them anyway. Too many of the seated had aspirations of godhood. Being a senior lawman of the rulers of Maybar, one of the eight auditors, he was specially equipped to never be fooled by such posturing. Lou's world here was cut out of stone as if buried deep inside the administrative world of Threshold aspirational office space, perhaps in hope of one day being not just one of 20 rulers of the universe, but one of one. Before Vondel was a long, narrow walkway between the two strange pools, leading to the stone chair where Lou sat. Behind the chair was a three-story tall circle carved into the wall, divided into five equal pieces. It had one slice glowing blue and appearing to be a pool of water, but up on the wall. Another glowed yellow and was a slow-moving surface of flames. Another was a maelstrom of leaves and dust and lazy lightning constantly crawling across dark clouds. Another, a deep red flow of lava. And the one directly behind Lou's chair, the fifth slice, was black nothing. Her white uniform seemed to glow in front of it. None of the divisions made a sound, and at the center of the circle was a seal of Maybar cut out of marble. Vondel knew that this artwork marked Lou to be a believer in the elemental ideal, 
an odd religion Vondel had never cared to try to understand. It had something to do with mastery over creation. More nonsense. More hubris. More posturing. Lou finally lifted her head but didn't look at Vondel. In contrast to her brooding, dramatic residence, her appearance was youthful and very pretty. She looked like she was only 17, so calling her beautiful seemed odd. All of that was made even more strange because Vondel knew she was at least 90 years old. I want eyes on Dan at all times, and I want Sanchez found now. Every second he's loose in the world, he spreads forbidden knowledge. Every breath he takes, he inches closer to the madness. We stopped the other Taw before they could do real damage, but Sanchez is a known dissenter. Yes, ma'am, Vondel said. None of these instructions were new. There was just more anger now that Lou had lost Negri as one of her allies. Leader of the Davites party, Lou was desperate to secure a majority in the assembly. Vondel lifted a hand. A thought. Lou looked at him for the first time. What? Sil Sukla is the problem with Negri. They're friends. And she is a moderate. Worse, Sukla has gained a liking of Dan. Lou coughed out a laugh. Of course. Ma'am. Vondel changed his tone slightly. We know that Negri has a spy among Dan's staff. We also know that he will never tell us the whole of what he learns from that spy. I was wondering... Yes, yes, I know all that already. Lou sighed. I don't want any assassinations, no threats. Not yet. We gain nothing by frightening our former allies into becoming even better at hiding what they know. We stop Sanchez first. We cooperate now until that is done. You may need help, so I procured a couple gifts for you. Dark figures, which Vondel was not aware of before, stepped out from either side of the chamber into the odd light of the five-segmented circle. Dressed in black with maroon trim, they were senior gammies of Lou's personal guard. Each one dragged out a woman in chains. Chains seemingly made of volcanic glass. The guards threw the women at Vondel's feet. He took a step back before the one on the right, a dark-skinned fire-pravied, could accidentally touch his boot as she steadied herself. That one looked up at Vondel, intelligent but terrified eyes. The other, a water-pravied woman, kept her head down. She looked weak and malnourished. These two would be on their way to stove for various crimes against the Aleph's they worked for, but I figured they'd be of more use to you considering your last apprentices recently were promoted out of your personal service. You're known for once being an excellent gammy trainer, so these two should be no challenge. Vondel nodded, remembering the four decades being referenced. He regretted how ruthless he'd been, how many trainees had died during the tests he'd subjected them to in their final weeks with him. He didn't know why these two Pravids were in such a bad way, but he did know that Lou wasn't creative in how she disciplined the disobedient. She was probably getting rid of a problem by passing it on to a subordinate. One of the guards handed Vondel a key and the two of them walked backwards to fade back into the shadows. Go to work. Lou waved a finger and the dark stone throne room vanished. Or, more accurately, Vondel and the two beaten women were transported from it back to a warm marina east of Seine in Prometheus. They were on a dock facing Vondel's private yacht, glinting in moonlight. 
The four little bits of broken gravel from the transportation stone Lou had sent him now sat inert on the wood floor of the dock. It was an Alephron dock, so there was no need for excessive discretion here when using such a stone. Vondel adjusted his jacket as he looked down at the two women. The blue water still hadn't looked up and seemed to be shivering. Vondel frowned, knowing that it would take all day to get them cleaned up, fed, and put into proper clothing to be his attendants. He cleared his throat and called out in a measured and calm voice as he knelt down to unlock their shackles. What are you called? The fire, though still on her knees, straightened up and looked at him in the eyes again, even though there was a timidity under the surface. Sir, Zai, sir. Vondel looked at the water who was still looking down. He caught Zai shooting her a look of disgust as he addressed her next. And you? The woman said something, but too softly for Vondel to hear it. Her name is Porter, Zai said. Very well, Porter, Zai. Vondel stood up and gestured for them to stand. You heard the seated. Time to get to work. <laughs> <laughs>